Stony Island Audio. What up, y'all? This is Open Mike Eagle once again. And oh, wow, this is episode 10 of season two of What It Happened Was on the world's greatest independent hip hop podcast network, Stony Island Audio, which I run. And if you're interested in these stories and stuff, uh, like the stuff we talk about with LP, music, legacy, hip hop, rap, collaborations, context, all of that fun stuff. Uh, we got a bunch of shows on our network, including Super Duty Tough Work with Blueprint and Elijah Can't Knock the Shovel with Sean Cantrowitz, Dad Bod, Rap Pod with Damone, Carter, Nate LeBlanc, and David Ma. The Fatherhoods podcast with DJ, EFN, KGB, and Manny Digital, Self Quar with Baron Vaughn, The Raw Report with Dice Raw, which I talked about last week, but it's not quite available yet. I had some misgivings on whether or not I should even mention it last week, but I did anyway. I got a little bit of foot in my mouth, but it's okay, folks. That's coming very soon, any day now. We've got some some um, technical hiccups. We're a young company. That's why you got to get with us here at Stony Island Audio. Get with us on the ground floor, okay? We got nowhere to go but up. We got a bunch of damn good content, all right? This is season two, episode 10 of our sit down with LP. And on this episode, we cover Run the Jewels 2. Now, we've been following LP's career ever since uh, the mid-90s, before he started Company Flow. And he's had a stellar career in underground hip-hop terms, where he's had releases that have received critical acclaim. Um, and he's had a lot of support. He's been able to do headline tours around the world, but only at a certain level, the level that underground hip-hop can provide. And after producing Killer Mike's rap music album and then him and Mike went on tour together, um, they realized uh, what a synthesis they had when they worked together. So they created Run the Jewels 1, uh, which was intended to be a one-off and, you know, started to become a phenomenon. And it's when they released Run the Jewels 2 that they're really starting to see that growth. And as you'll see in this conversation with that growth comes some very particular kinds of unforeseen headaches and circumstances and such. Um, so it's great to be able to chart the rise. They've done it in a few specific ways, especially if you look at uh, a couple of music videos they have that are concert videos that show, you know, what their circumstances are at the time. They show what the crowds look like at the shows. And then you can see this very distinct jump between Run the Jewels 1 and Run the Jewels 2. And you'll hear some stories here about how, um, you know, as, as fantastic as it was for that to be successful, the challenges that come along with receiving that level of notoriety. And also we're going to talk about a little thing called Meow the Jewels, which uh, I hear some people are interested in. All that and more. Let's get into it. Season 2, Episode 10. What it happened was. My name is Open Mike Eagle, and this is another conversation with Open Mike Eagle. Deluxe labor, the underground undertaker. The whole cape is independent as fuck flavor. Audio exhibit, visit the history. To him winning without fucking with the industry. And him losing without fucking with the industry. No illusion, we tracing every movement in the symphony. This is official from lifting of pencils. Cold flow the depth chucks up to the fist and the pistol. I'm sending questions like infinite missiles. Digging for details when stories from the past come up. 
And if he don't remember, then he has to shrug. It's what the podcast does, what it happened was. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, people of the internet. Uh, my name is Open Mike Eagle, and this is What Had Happened Was. Uh, and this is season two, where every week we get the pleasure, the privilege of being able to take a stroll down memory lane with the one and only Mr. LP. How we doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? All right. All right. Wake it up. You know what I'm saying? I'm getting there. Yeah. Getting there. Yeah. I'm, I'm well aware that the time difference sometimes, you know. It takes you a second, you know. It does. I feel bad about it. You know, I usually get up around 7 in the morning every day, no matter what, anyway. No, you can't talk me out of my shame. You can't (laughs) talk me out. (laughs) There's no use. I'm a martyr. Yeah. Last we left off, it was at the end uh, of a tour where y'all had just put out Run the Jewels. And uh, during the course of the tour, like it goes from situation where you two are doing longer kind of solo sets and doing Run of Jewels at the end. And you're starting to realize, oh, like, this is when the energy happens when we do the Run of Jewels stuff. Like, it's like mm-hmm. Run of Jewels is like becoming the draw. Mm-hmm. And uh, y'all have footage of that that goes into a music video. It's really beautiful to see. But now, after coming home from that tour with that realization, like, what's, what's the next move from there? Since this was previously just supposed to be a one-off project. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least a hundred of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. At some point on the on the road, we just sort of looked at each other and I was just like, you want to do another one? And he was like, hell yeah. And that was it. That was the whole conversation. And we didn't know up until that point, as we mentioned, we didn't plan on it being a series. We just, we had no idea what it was going to be. We just did a, a, we just did a record. I think that probably thinking that this would be just a little intermission between our solo projects and that I'd probably go in and do another uh, rap music album with Mike and then another record with, you know, for myself. But yeah, I mean, we just, 
we just kind of decided spontaneously. And, and at that point, we just started going. Like, you know, we, we dropped the second one in 2014 and the first one in 2013. The first one, like I said, like the majority of the vocal recording took, took place in about a, a two-week period of time. The second one, I think, I think for both of us, we saw that there was something there, obviously. And for me, I knew that I wanted to do it again because it felt good. It felt right. It felt fun. Um, and it was, it was connecting with people. But I also knew that we couldn't do the same record again. Right. I also knew, I, I knew that, I knew that the, re- the first record came out and people hadn't heard that before. People mm-hmm. hadn't heard that combination of styles before. People hadn't, you know, it was new it wouldn't make sense to just go and repeat ourselves, you know? And if so, if we were going to do this, we had to have some, like kind of every record that I go into, you have to have some sort of guiding philosophy about what's the essence of this? What makes this different? What makes the, what's the step that we're taking, you know? And that might just be ingrained in my general perspective of the way that I move. Like I'm always trying to figure that out mm-hmm. just to even get myself motivated to have a direction in this sound and sort of the spirit of it the only thing that i really said and we we talked about about it was like this one has to have more of us in it Mm. like it has to be less of a just a form for us to just be you know just wrap our asses off and it has to be asked to keep that but it has to be something else we got to take a step and bring ourselves a little bit into it because we were making the choice that we're going to spend the next however many couple you know at least a couple years Again, if everything goes right, right, using this as like our whole creative platform. You know, you have to understand like me and Mike, like Mike was a full on artist before I met Mike. I was a full on artist before he met me. We had our own legacies. We had our own things that we wanted to say. And we found this really cool middle ground and this way to do a project together that was really fun for us. And it was a departure from what we would maybe normally do for ourselves. And it still is. To this day, I mean, we're both in our minds solo artists in a lot of ways, and there will be solo record. It was never like we're ending our, our, our careers individually as artists. It was just like, this is special, and we're going to recognize it, and we're going we're gonna to chase it. And the, and the way that I have felt good about doing that and being like, all right, let's spend the time to do this is if we kind of upped the ante a little bit yeah. and kind of made it like, all right, well, then if that's the case, if we're doing this again, then we're going to have to say some shit because we both individually have to say some shit. And that's, that's the cornerstone of, of our, both of our individual sort of art. And, and, and probably one of the things that connected us was that we, we have something to say. And we had said a few things with Run the Jewels, but mostly it was a style record. Mostly it was a talk shit record. It was yeah. a fun record. We knew that this one was going to have to be, um, a, we're going to have to bring our, our spirits into this one more. And there were going to be some harder moments and there were going to be some, you know, some moments that weren't about, weren't about levity because we had a lot to say. And it was either we were going to go off into our separate corners and say the things that we would say in our own way, apart from each other, or we were going to see where that intersected, you know, and, and be like, all right, well, when we talk about some shit, then what can we do with that? And that, and that was the only thing we just wanted it to be meaner, harder, nastier. And we knew that we were angry and this record was going to reflect that. Where did y'all record this one? We recorded this record the same place. Okay, the same place. The same place, mostly. Okay. Combination of the same studio in upstate New York, as well as we did 
some in Alchemist Studio in, in LA. Alchemist was like, hey, I'm not even going to be around. You can just use my spot. And we used the spot. We also used the, uh, the Brain Feeder Studio um, in, in LA. We did some shit in Atlanta. So it was sort of a, just a combination. But like, we, like LA played a bigger part in it because it was, it was like wintertime when we started. We were both mm. like, let's get the fuck out of the East Coast <laughs> and just go somewhere that we can agree on. You know, <laughs> like that was sort of, it's just sort of a hodgepodge of, of different spots. Since um, it had proven to be such a big success, did y'all have any thought of like changing the business plan going in, into this one? Like taking it to a label, getting a big, fat, chunky advance, and like doing things the traditional way? Well, yeah, I mean, we did. I mean, to an extent, we went to mass appeal. I think that our perspective at that time was simply just like we 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 thought it was cool to have somebody dealing with the physical product and like putting some promotion into it. We had done that sort of from the beginning in the sense that we also did that with Fool's Gold. Like they, you know, they pressed the records up, they did the CDs, blah, blah, blah. They paid for the publicist, you know, all that. But we always kept those deals kind of low impact. You know what I mean? Like it was just, it wasn't like we were trying to get some huge advance. We didn't take anything from Fool's Gold and we, we got something from Mass Appeal, but that was never like really a part of the plan. Mostly it was just like, we just would take what we spent on it. You know, we would make the record mm-hmm. and, and, you know, travel, recording costs, all that shit. Yeah. And, um, and then, so when we stepped to, to Mass Appeal, I think we, we, you know, we liked what they were doing over there. We liked the people involved. Um, and of course, you know, Nas being, you know, a partner was encouraging us. And by this point, our philosophy was now solidified, where it was like, we give this shit away for free. Mm-hmm. So not only do we want a deal, but we're also going to give this shit away for free. So we positioned ourselves with that one. It's like we were kind of one-upping a little bit every time. Every time we put one of these records out, Part of it was about saying, like, look what we did last time. So we want to be a, we want to do that again. But it was never about asking for a whole bunch of money and shit. It was just mm-hmm. kind of trying to find the right partners, people who understood it and were enthusiastic and, you know, boring shit like that. But <laughs> it was always one offs because we always pictured every album as a one off. You know, for us, any day now, we could just decide not to do the shit and it would be fine. We'd right. be like, all right, cool. That was dope. Again, we were still artists. So the only thing that we really decided was that we were going to try and get somebody to give us the money we spent back. <laughs> right. And we were going to make sure that they, that they were cool with us giving the record away. Uh, the hands on RTJ2 are bandaged. Yeah. Does that have a, did that have a thematic meaning? Yeah, they all do. When, when, you know, when I was building with Gazin, Nick Gazin about the next cover the idea was that I wanted to hopefully just slowly evolve the hand and that there would be a, some sort of symbolic sort of story to that, ultimately. One that we were sort of winging and trying to figure out as it, as it occurred to us. But yeah, the, the bandages came up as an idea of the sort of, I think, because of the tone. Because the record itself was kind of like, there were two reasons why the bandages were there. One of them was that I think that you could hear some pain in this record, mm-hmm. you know? You could hear that there had been some injury and it wasn't necessarily injury that happened in the last year. It was like, we're just introducing the truth of who we are, which is that there's, there's something else coming, you know, where this music is coming from and we're introducing it on this record. Um, and it also, I, I felt like it, it, it indicated that this was an evolving thing. Like there's something mysterious about being bandaged up, you know, because when you take the bandages off, it, it can, you know, it can be transformative. And we kind of imagined that this would change. And we knew that this record that we had made was pushing us somewhere. We didn't exactly know where, but we knew that it was, 
starting to define run the jewels as our as you know as a concept in a different way so it was about kind of referencing the last thing but also showing that this was getting into people's heads to expect that this was going to start evolving and by the time we get to the last record or or the next record or whatever you shouldn't expect run the jewels to be exactly what run the jewels was when you first were introduced to run you know to them yeah. So, so getting into the music on um, Run the Jewels 2 a little bit, um, song Jeffrey. 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 Run the Jewels is the answer. Your question is what's popping? Pop, 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 pop. And it is popping. And, you know, you, you're coming from having a solo career that always had a lot of support. But, like, this time there seems to be a bigger groundswell of support behind this particular endeavor. Um like how did how did that feel for you to have like people behind something you're doing on that level? Well, I mean, I think that we didn't really know. I tell you, like like you said, I always I always I was always lucky to have a career. You know what I mean? Like one that I was happy with, one that I made money off of, one that was like allowed me to do what I wanted to do. Never really compromised, and always just put the records out that I wanted to. But the difference was is that I put them out every five fucking years. Right. So the fact that I was even a, still on the radar. By the time I got to run the jewels was actually kind of amazing because that's like the anti-momentum. You know what I mean? Like that's not, you know, what my trick was, I just tried to make every record ill enough that it could stand on its own and, and uh, you know, and not have to have momentum essentially. Cause every time I did it, uh, came out with a new record, there was like, there was a five year gap. And I don't think there was a real obvious blow up with run the jewels. It was more just like a momentum. Like people are into this. Mm-hmm. And and we're into it. But what we did know was that A, this shit was easier to make than our solo stuff. I don't know why, but I think it was just energy. Yeah. It was just kind of like we made these shits relatively quick, especially for me as a producer. I'm a notoriously fucking like anal producer. Like I like even though my shit sometimes sounds like complete mayhem, I worked <laughs> on that mayhem right. <laughs> for like a year. Handcrafted you know? mayhem. Yeah. Handcrafted handcrafted exactly chaos. We knew that if we if we kept pushing, that maybe we'd be able to catch some momentum, and that was something that I had never really done in my career. I had always ignored that idea, you know, like doesn't matter. It's the quality of work that matters. When the time comes for the record to come out, that we were like, let's go in now, let's do it, let's ride this, see where it goes, because we we just had an inkling that it that it could catch on if we cared about it, if we went for it. We didn't really realize that there was any blow up factor or anything kind of until we dropped run the jewels too you know right. really when we dropped run the jewels too and, and the ticket sales started to explode and the rooms got bigger and shit so it was a minute it was a minute we knew that we had like we had garnered excitement from people and that and that excitement fed our desire to get down again you know yeah mike sounds hella excited on the intro he is hyped and hollering I'm gonna bang this bitch the fuck out you, better, you might want to record another way. You finna look at history being made. This motherfucker put a mirror on the goddamn screen. Let's go, LP. Huh? Tell what we gonna do, man. Uh, yeah. Is that real audio from the session he was about 100. to first? That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. 100%. That was in Alchemist Studio, actually. Wow. And like, if you hear it, I'm not sure if I kind of tried to edit it out because it's like this really low-end sound. But if you he like, he hit the microphone by accident. Like, you can... It's like right in the middle of him saying it. It's like, well, it's like, you know, it's this horrible sound. <laughs> but yeah, 
I have this um, uh, rule that I, I keep recording. I keep the mic going because you never know what the fuck is going to happen. And there's, throughout my career, so many wonderful little moments have happened that end up on a record because that's the shit that you can't you can't create, you know, you can't, you can't just be like, I'm going to do this and make it sound cool. Like some shit just has to be obviously um, spontaneous, but yeah, that was real. That was definitely real. And we were in LA and it was just Mike trying to hype himself up. Cause I think Mike got off the plane. Motherfucker had taken like a full Zanny. <laughs> <laughs> First day I was like, he was lobotomized. I was like, yo man, I can, we can't even work. And I, I, and I think Mike was, we were psyched to be going, but Mike is also, he's a, he, he loves being home. More than anything, Mike likes being in Atlanta, around his people, around his wife. That's really his preferred state, you know what I mean? But we, but we kind of chose Cali because it, I like my life too, you know? And it was sort of like, <laughs> it was sort of like, well, we'll both throw ourselves into the, you know, into the abyss. But yeah, no, that was like the first jam. That's awesome. That we rapped on. And he literally did that shit that day. We finished that song in New York. Mm-hmm. It, but that beat is something that I've been working on, you know, for a minute. It's probably, probably the first thing that I worked on for the record. A lot of times, that's how it happens, man. The first thing I work on for the record often ends up being the first thing I play for Mike. Mm-hmm. And that often ends up being like the, the first, first thing on the record because Mike is hyping himself up and he's thinking about it in terms of like, okay, we're starting. And a lot of times it sounds like that. Y'all have seven music videos for this album really um, yeah yeah <laughs> um do y'all go into projects like with the thought that videos are are, are very important for it yeah hell yeah mm-hmm. i mean we do as many as we can yeah, you know a lot sure. of them come from other alternative sources of funding a lot of them come from our pocket it's such like a gift to be able to do videos you know not everybody gets the chance to like spend some dough you know, we're artists and the medium is exciting to us and getting involved. I'm always very intrinsically involved in the creation of the video. So to get the chance to do, and not everyone, some of them are just, someone comes to us with a great idea and we go, yeah. great. And we think visually, but we don't really, um, that's like a phase that you go through when you're, when you're sort of dumb, as you know, when you're, you know, <laughs> who the fuck has time to think about a music video when you're tr- trying to remember how to rap? That's real. Uh, one of the videos I wanted to touch on, um, the video for close your eyes and count to fuck. Run them jewels fast. Run them, run them jewels fast. Run them, run them, run them, run them, run them. Fuck the slow mo. Yeah. The young Lakeith Stanfield fighting the cop. Fighting, fighting, fighting. Um, um, the cop is is a famous actor as well. Yeah, Shea Wiggum. Shea Wiggum was like an established actor at that point, and Lakeith. Well, he had been in some shit. I think he had played Snoop Dogg in the NWA movie. Yo, 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 hold up. Who the fuck is this guy? Oh, my bad, Shig. This the homie Snoop. Snoop D-O-double-G, cuh. Who you? Oh, I didn't even realize that. that, that was yeah, him. and, um, but he was, you know, far less established and, and just this amazing actor, man. I just was looking at that video and, and I had this question, just a little peek behind the scenes, like how much yeah. of that fight was choreographed? As far as I understand, it was a highly choreographed fight. Okay. okay. As much as it could be. Okay. You know? Because it just got such raw ass energy and like exhaustion, like two yeah. dudes that have been fighting for like a day. You know what I'm saying? Correct. And fighting for eternity. 
Yeah, you know? and that and that was sort of the that was sort of the the idea. And that was uh, Ag Rojas, who was just yeah. an unbelievable director, and he came to us with this idea. And um, that was one of the first ones where we were just like, we don't have anything to say. You just you just shoot what you you want to shoot. And I think that we were trying to. What we did work on was we talked a lot about what it meant, you know? We were trying to understand what it meant because it it's powerful and, and there's a lot of room for interpretation. Um, and, and, and it did get a lot of interpretation. Some of it, not, not what we were thinking. You know what I mean? Some of, it, some of it was more along the lines of what we were thinking, which was that what we're looking at is an eternal struggle set up by other people mm-hmm. um, has locked people against each other because of roles that are forced on them. You know, because the devil is in the details, right? But you have to understand the macro of the shit in the way that, and you know, the true, the humanity of it. And I think that that's what Rojas is going for, which was like, say what you want about the details, but the humanity of it is that this is this fucking fruitless, useless, and bullshit fight to the death that people in a, in a higher echelon of society have pitted a certain class of people against each other, you know? And it was really just about the raw energy of it. And I think that they just did such a beautiful job, man. Both actors were just mind-blowing. I mean, and I was on set. We, we went on set. And, and that was filmed in a pretty, pretty raw neighborhood in mm. L.A. It, it was a very authentic and an intense set. Meeting Lakeith and, like, seeing him, he was in it. You know, mm. he was, they, both of those guys were fully fucking invested in the shit in a way that made me really grateful and also kind of in awe. Like, you know, you, you seeing actors sort of really fucking going for it in that way, seeing two guys really inhabiting and been, they'd been scrapping mm-hmm. all day long by the time we got on set and they were beaten down and exhausted and they were fully in it. And it was really amazing and honor, like an honor to see because it was like, man, they're doing this in some ways for us. I think the video is, is going to be looked back on, and not because of us, but because of the art that just it's came out piece. of it. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. I do. And it's, and it's, and it's beautiful and it's painful. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not, it's, there's, no, there's no correct conclusion about no, it. You know what I mean? It, no. No one wins. But I, I was really grateful to everyone involved in that. More than anything, it felt like we had just found a creative partner who was willing to take a risk and because they were willing to take a risk we were like okay let's go you know it's a risk people are going to have something to say about it people are going to be in their feelings about it one way or the other that's what this is about right that's what we're doing here so speaking of creative partnerships man y'all got zach de la roca on this song we dipping from Gotham Yes, it clips by the shadows of dark dance in the coffin I'm a fellow with melanin Suspect of a felony Ripped like rock in my law Feds is checking my melody Less aggressively testable Bomb stretches and penalties Y'all have done three joints together so far uh, as, a, as a trio Yeah um, Y'all have an amazing kind of natural chemistry The three of y'all Do oh, yeah. you Do you have any insight on why you think that is? Like, what do you what do you think about his energy that fits so well between y'all's? Well, I've known Zach since the late '90s when Zach and Rage broke up. Zach came to Brooklyn to, to chill in my apartment for a month and work wow. on music. So he was a Company Flow fan. He was like the first big dude to be like, "I want that dude to produce my shit," you know. And I wasn't a producer; I was just a, kind of a kid making beats in his in his bedroom. Um, I didn't know what it was like to produce, but our relationship 
stayed in touch because of that. And we just really instantly liked each other. When we went to LA to, to record Run the Jewels 2, me and Mike were literally in an Uber. Or no, our manager had rented a fucking, a fucking cheap Grand Cherokee or something. <laughs> or a fucking Suburban. I don't remember. But we were, we were on the way to the studio and I was like, yo, stop over here. I want to get a juice. I was staying in Silver Lake, like, you know, like yuppies do. And, um, <laughs> and we just stopped off at this juice spot. I wanted to get a juice, which sounds really hard when you say it out loud, but yeah. that's, what, that's the deal. I wanted to get a juice. And Zach was right there sitting outside and I hadn't seen or spoken to him in probably three or four years. Mm. Um, and I was like, yo, what's up, Zach? And he was like, oh shit, what's up? And I was like, oh, yo, let me introduce you to Mike. And I introduced him to Mike. And, and he was like, yo, the run of jewels shit, that shit is fucking incredible. And I hadn't spoken to him. So, you know, but Zach is, Zach is ahead, man. Zach mm -hmm. is literally up on every piece of fucking music. Like, I guarantee you, he knows your album. I guarantee mm. you, he knows everything that drops. And we were like, yo, we're headed to the studio right now. Come through. And that was it. And he That's came amazing. through and I played him. The, I played him the close your eyes shit. I was like, what's up? You, you want to jump on this shit? And he was just like, yeah. But the, the chemistry, I think is, I don't, you know, Zach loved what we were doing. He's always loved my production. I think he was just amped, man. I, you know, he's a hip hop head. Like he wraps his ass off and I, he hasn't gotten too many chances to like, straight up bona fide be on a rap record um he's done a few here and there throughout his history but i think it really just comes from a friendship i think that it, you know zach is actually one of my best friends and I, it was so nice to reconnect with him because that really from there on he was every record we've done he's been on and wow. we've become really really close and he's you know part of the family i really do consider him sort of the extended family of run the jewels and like he's the third rapper he's the other dude who's been on more than any other person apart from track star he's the third rapper for sure and he pops up here and there and you know me and him are destined we're gonna you know we, we might be having we might do something you yeah, know so that. yeah i love that dude uh and and earlier you were talking about up in the ante you were saying it, it was about putting more of yourselves into this album um and y'all do that, but y'all also balance it by putting more of what was on the first album on there too. So like, sure. you know, the dick raps get turned up to, to 12, 13 as well. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you, the joke is on us. Mm -hmm. And I think that like we talked about before, that's really important. I think that if you're making a joke, it has to be clearly a joke. Right. We're actually sort of poking fun at our hyper-masculinity there's a way to um, say anything if it's done with empathy and humor. And that's the way I, I always approach it. But you'll notice on Run the Jewels 4, there's none of that. Mm. And it's like, I have done that. You know, that's not, that's, that's not what this moment is. That's not mm. what this is about. But at the time, it was literally just, literally just trying to make people bust out and laugh. You know, using myself as the joke. There's only one moment on that record that we took a risk with that, and that would be um, with the Boo record. That's, you know? that's exactly what I was getting to. With Love Again. Well, mm -hmm. well there's an interesting story behind that. That's, so, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> here's the story behind that. The original jam was, do you remember Beats and a Rhyme, Run DMC, where they, where they cut up Sam, Sam Kinison going, Dick in the mouth all day! I don't even know that, if I ever heard that. It's a famous Run DMC song and they cut up Sam Kinison who was like, A little! A big! Originally, I had sampled that. So the, so the record was supposed to be just us talking shit. 
using this reference, using this familiar reference that is known to a lot of people. And, um, and then, then that sample came out and we were starting to say it, you know, mm-hmm. and we didn't really scream it. We were just saying it. And then Mike wrote a sex rap <laughs> and, then, and, and he started writing a sex rap and I came in with a sex rap. And so we did the song, two verses about fucking someone that you're in love with. It's not just fucking anybody. It's like love again. I think I'm in love again. We're talking about just getting down with someone yeah. that you just love. It's a grimy, fun sex record. But then you get to the hook and we were getting to the hook and we originally, we didn't have Boo on the record and we were listening to the demos. And this is relatively close to when the record needed to be handed in and we're listening to the demos and we just looked at each other and we were just like, you know, this is the one that doesn't feel right. It doesn't, mm. like, this isn't what we intended. We don't want anyone to listen to this record and be like, this is about misogyny. We didn't feel that our verses were that. We thought they were clearly not that. But the hook was so, you know, the hook is the thing that people hear, right? It just didn't feel right. The song wasn't done. And so we had this discussion. We were like, we need a female perspective. If we're using this, then we need to base it on the classic fun records that were empowering, actually. We were both like, absolutely. It's either not on the record or we got to get someone who's just as nasty, if not nastier than us, to come on here and turn the record on its head. Let me tell you a little story. I, I had a young player from the hood. Licked my pussy real good. Kept me stuck with lots of wood. Kept my bank account on swole. Sniffed my pussy like a rose. Smoking on drove. Made a porn tape. That nigga is a pro. You ain't know. And when she did it, she made us blush. You know what I mean? Boo is <laughs> just the rawest. She, she just came in and just destroyed it. And then we flipped it to Clint in his mouth all day. It was still a risky record because right. you didn't really know where it was headed until Boo came right. in. And so we were willing to risk a bad first impression to, for two thirds of the song. It was worth risking for about two and a half minutes, people not getting where it was going. Because if we nailed it and we landed it right, people would realize that we had we flipped it at the mm-hmm. end mm-hmm. and that it made the whole thing a different song. Right. And, it, and it was like an unveiling. Like, you think this is what this is, right. and then it's not. And that's what me and Mike really discussed. And we're, and, and we're like, we have to make sure that we're not betraying ourselves. And it's a perfect example, Run the Jewels 3, where I, where I, where the original line was, I have a unicorn horn for a cock. But, and, and I wrote that as a joke, obviously. It's, I don't. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, but, you know, I wrote it as a ridiculous thing to say. You know, I got my wife to come in and just be like, Stop. You know, just to make, not make sure that it appears a certain way, but to make sure that it is a certain way. That, that no matter what I'm doing, I'm making sure that the joke is on me if, if there's a joke. I can poke fun at myself. I can be the, the ass in this situation. I'm not going to put that on someone I don't know. I'm not going to put that on someone that is just there to listen to some music. Um, and so that's what we try and apply, man. And that's something that we are um, real about and serious about, too. And I, you know, I just appreciate you saying all that because I think that for a lot, when it comes to rap music specifically, I think people tend to underassume the amount of thoughtfulness that goes into stuff. Yeah. So like, that's why it was really important to me because I I knew that there was some thoughtfulness, even not having spoke to you about it, just knowing the way you and Mike move. Like, I know that there's thought that goes into that. So like, I knew there was a story to tell. tell, 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 tell. And now a word from our sponsors. We're going to get back to our conversation in just a moment, but we want to give a quick shout out and a thank you to our sponsors at Better 
help you may know me open mike eagle is a pretty calm and composed guy but if you know me or you follow me on a uh, patreon you know i'll be going through it man i'll be having all types of uh, challenges happening in my personal and professional life i find that in those moments it's really important to have somebody to talk to so that's why i'm proud to be sponsored uh, by BetterHelp. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online 24-7. You can send a message to your counselor anytime to get timely and thoughtful responses, all without ever having to sit in a weird, awkward, and uncomfortable waiting room. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. You have licensed professional counselors that specialize in depression, stress, anger, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and many more. It's all confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. They want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp.com slash WHHW. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health again. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WHHW. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. So, last we left with uh, with RTJ One, um, he had a video that was made from footage of the first tour, uh, and now uh, leaving Run the Jewels Two with the video for Angel Duster, yeah, um, which shows a tour that's very different. Uh, things have things have ratcheted up a notch. The size of the rooms are bigger. The amount of yeah. hands going up it seems like a sea of humans now. Uh, and it's really incredible to see, especially because you have, you know, the same video on a smaller scale coming off the first album. Um, like, just getting out of Run the Jewels 2 and 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 talking about the, the feeling of putting it out and, and and seeing that response. Like, do you have memories of that tour in that time? Yeah, that was, that, and you're right about that. And it's a really kind of a cool evolution to see. And it is a touchstone, you know, the two, the two it became almost like a tradition. And we did a similar video to that in Run the Jewels 3 as well. And this time we're in 10,000 person rooms, but it was for down. So it's, it's amazing for me. That's one of my favorite videos to watch because I know that at that time we were really blown away by how big it was getting, you know? It was a real experience. It was, a, it was something that I hadn't really experienced throughout my life and my career in the sense that a thousand person room was, was doable in a big city. And, but you were counting tickets till the end, you know, right up until you went on. Neither of us had gotten to that point where just our club shows had gotten big. But I, what I remember about that tour was literally we were on the tour and I kind of we, we started a pre-tour and we did like this little pre-tour. I think like Red Bull had sponsored it. They gave us a bus and we were going around. It was kind of before the record had really dropped. And so it kind of got, allowed us to kind of cut our teeth on the new material in front of some crowds. And they were kind of small crowds. And then the press started to come out about the record. And the, the hype started to hit with the record. And all of a sudden, we saw for the first time that, that mystical thing that, that you always hear about bands seeing, which is like, we saw it blow up. We were mm. like, holy shit, because we're looking at the numbers. We went from being, again, counting every head that comes in to being like, told yo this tour is sold out wow and we're like what do you mean <laughs> like, yeah it's it's actually sold out actually we have to bump up to some bigger rooms and i remember looking at mike and mike looking at me and and us just bursting into laughter like this like surprised laughter unspoken we didn't even have mm. to talk about what it was but like 
it was just this amazing confluence of luck and appreciation, I think, that we both felt. And then we just went on and just had the time of our fucking lives on this tour. I mean, it was just, man, the response to the music was bigger than anything that we had ever seen. We had seen some really amazing responses to our music. Run the Jewels 2 was another level. And in a way, maybe it was also just clicking for fans being like, oh, this isn't some bullshit one-off. This is something I can invest in. Like, uh... this is... This is something that, uh, you know, I can maybe, maybe I'll even get the tattoo. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I'll even, like, people started letting us know in different ways that they felt really excited to invest in us as music and as, and as people, you know, um, in terms of what we represented to them. But that tour was booked originally just as the same type of tour that we thought we would always do, which was 500 to 1,000 people, venues, maybe we do a couple bigger ones than that. Everyone would cram on the bus. Everybody who was on the team, including all the opening acts and everything, were crammed on the same bus because you gotta make you gotta make sure that you have the you know, that you're not spending too much and, yeah, and I put it to you this way and run the tools three it was two buses. <laughs> and, and it was like to me, even just being on a bus, I mean I'd been on buses since, you know, my solo career, but that still was just the most amazing luxury in the fucking world. Yeah, you know, man. like when, you know, straight up, it is. So there was a, there was just this explosion of energy on that tour. The pe- people were losing it in a way that we had never seen to the point where we had to start instituting some things in our shows. We had to say things before certain records, like, "Yo, look, guys, I know that you're here losing your shit and you're flailing around and you're starting mosh pets and shit, but like." A, look around you and please, everyone's here as a community. Like if you see somebody who's not having a good time or, or somehow injured or anything or falling down, stop, pick right. those people up. We realized that our shows were getting big enough and rowdy enough that we, we had to try and lead a little bit on that. I think that one of the things that happens when you get bigger, you have to make sure that you imbue the audience with the spirit of the way that you want this to go right. down. Right. And I and I think that if you do that in a respectful way, not in an in an angry way, but you set the tone and say, This is not just what we want, this is what you want too. Because if you're down with us, this is what you want too. You want everyone to feel safe. You want everyone to feel um that this is a, a space where they can have fun and then and, and that they're not gonna not come because it's too rowdy or because there's people in here that are disrespectful. So that came with the bigger audience. You know what I mean? That was like a, that was something that we realized during the Run the Jewels 2 thing and have carried on ever since in a real way. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent. No, nah, dude, we're here for the tangents, man. Uh, but speaking yeah. of which, there's a part in the video where Mike is in like an arm brace. Do you remember yeah. how he hurt his arm? Mike had a bad shoulder okay. already. And I think it was exacerbated when we got attacked. So we got attacked on stage. I didn't even, I don't know about this. This is on that yeah. tour? This is the beginning of Run the Jewels 2 in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. We got attacked by a, by a guy who was having a real episode. There was a fence right behind us and there was a street. So it was an outdoor thing. Some dude jumped on stage, jumped, hopped over the fence. And while we were in the middle of performing, came at us from behind, started trying to grab. I didn't even see it uh, until it was a thing. I didn't know, we didn't really even know what was happening until it was happening. Ran up to Mike, tried to grab the, you know, grab the microphone from Mike. Mm. This is, and this is a big dude. 
And uh, at first, Mike didn't know what was happening. He thought it was a fan or something. And then the dude started getting aggressive. You know, he started looking at his eye. I mean, the guy was not all there. He was very like, he was having, I think, a manic, you know, some sort of break. You know, like the guy was definitely not well and definitely not there to cheer us on. Mm. And it turned, you know, it sort of turned out, we sort of pieced it together that this guy was a guy who, he had got in his head that we were stealing lyrics from him in his head okay, and shit. Yeah, and like yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. he had a he had a he had a very well constructed sort of fantasy, uh, you know, head. thing. Yeah, that not just about us either. So Mike has pushed this guy away. At this point, I'm on the other side of the stage with my facing a corner of the crowd. I don't even know what's happening. When you're on stage, you're not even yeah. really paying attention to anything behind you, you yeah. know? And I turn around, and then this guy's right up in my face, and I don't know what's happening. I have to go through the same moment that Mike had to go through. Mm-hmm. And this guy's grabbing my microphone, and I'm looking at him, and then, and then he's grabbing my shirt, and we start to, to kind of, like, tussle a little bit. I fall over. Mike runs, Mike runs over um, to try and push him off me. This dude, like I said, this dude was, was a big guy. This is not a small guy and all of a sudden you got this and i looked in this guy's eyes and i was like oh shit but it was all happening right at the same time i fall down some metal shit from the stage goes right into my gut like i had a fucking yeah like it didn't puncture but i I got i got injured i was injured for the rest of the week so i think in the tussle that the thing that mike already had going on with his arm Mm. and his shoulder it worsened it and uh he had to get surgery on it um it was probably something that he ultimately was going to get surgery on already some sort of old sports injury. That's that story. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the guy, um, you know, we got him off the stage and then there was a, there was a rumpus as they say. And the guy was out of there and the cops just let him go. And he was clearly, he was clearly dangerous. Like he was Mm. clearly not only to other people, but probably to himself. And, and of course, and then it made all these, you know, it was a big story, you know, and it's sort of, I think fed even in a weird way, fed into the energy of right. everything that was happening. You know, um, there was just an energy around us. And I think there was so much energy around us that it even, it even got this guy going, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a sense, both Mike and I looked at it, you know, with, um, with some empathy because, you know, it was clear, despite the fact that he was literally trying to hurt us. Right. I, I think that it was clear to both of us when it was all said and done after we had calmed down, you know, that this guy was unwell mm-hmm. and that, um, you know, that it was actually quite sad. And, um, right. and thank God we were, we were okay. Cause it could have been a bad situation. And then, you know, we, we weren't the type of cats to roll with security. We just rolled with some crew, right. you know, and, um, you know, it was an eye opener for us. It was like, Oh, this comes too with, with this moment, you know, mm-hmm. like we're getting bigger and, there's certain shit that when you're on the underground, you don't really deal with either, you know, right. which is like penetrating the public consciousness to the point where it can also go wrong. Um, you say a line on the album that I just have to touch on, you know, just on a personal level, man. You say, uh, you say we might be giants. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it may, it, it, it's, it's, it's put me in a position where I got to ask. I mean, do you mess with they might be giants to band? Is, is that somebody you, you, you've dug into at all? Like no, it was more just like a reference because that happened in my childhood. You know, gotcha. was, I always liked I always liked the name of the band. That's my favorite band, thought, dude. Like, they're, really, they're so dope. Like, but they're like crazy, like nerd rock, crazy music. Like, they're just dope to me. That's my favorite band. So I just always thought it was a cool name. It just always struck me as a writer. It was always like, what a weird name. 
You know, like, <laughs> hey, we might be giants. You know, I don't know. But they also, you know, they also, they're a band and they have a song called They Might Be Giants, just like mm-hmm. y'all have a song called Running mm-hmm. Jewels. Yeah, you know, cool. Part of, part is, of it on the, is it on the self-titled album? Uh, no, it's, it's not on the, it's not, it's, it's on the Flood album. It's not on the self-titled album. I got but, you. Yeah. Well, then you didn't, they didn't hit the trifecta. They didn't, you know? they didn't. Self-titled <laughs> album. <laughs> they didn't Name hit the triple Song title. Yeah. One thing I, I just want to touch on before we, uh, you know, as we wrap up Run the Jewels is, uh, a project that y'all talked about that everybody took as a threat, but nobody actually thought would actually happen. The Meow the Jewels. I'm putting pistols and faces at random places like, bitch, give it up, or stand adjacent to Satan. Yeah. So, Meow the Jewels is a remix album, Run the Jewels 2, created with all uh, catch sounds. Yes. This is the apology section of the... <laughs> Of the interview, yeah. No way, man. I mean, I mean, it was done for uh, for for the best reasons, though, right? No, I mean, this is where the world apologizes to me oh, for good. having okay, for like good. forcing okay. me to make that shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yes, you know, it's funny because you kind of feel like people don't they're a little separated from the way that that all came about. And yeah, the for whole sure. Purpose of it was at this point. Anyone who's coming in to like run the jewels now or from the last couple of records, who's like, wait a second, they made a record with cat noise remixes and like they got like the illest producers you know yes. just blaze and jeff barrow and fucking you know prince like paul yeah prince paul and you know automator and all these incredible producers you know assembled onto this record that is just clearly the stupidest fucking you know music ever but also laudably like you know the whole challenge was for people to make dope shit out of cat noises and they did um but the reason we did it was because um, it's just, it evolved from a joke that we made when we were doing the album pre-orders. And I was writing out this, this writing out all the different packages that you could get if you pre-ordered the album. You know, it's like you know this pad, the sweatshirt, and the and the CD plus the you know the vinyl and just the CD and just you know. And I was writing this out and I was stoned at my kitchen table and I was just like, ah, this is so fucking boring. And I just started writing joke ones out you know <laughs> like you know the fucking mystery package where like you know we'll, we'll drive around your town in a van and solve local mysteries you know like just <laughs> stupid shit just putting it just just putting like giant price tags on the stuff like a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars for the you know uh, and we'll you know for the uh kitchen nightmares package where we'll like go with you and like force the restaurant to change their menu and one of them that i wrote was the meow the jewels package for forty thousand dollars that would be that we'd remix the entire album using nothing but cat noise. I probably should have priced it higher than $30,000. <laughs> so what happened was basically the joke pre-order packages got a lot of attention. Someone online who was a fan decided to raise the money to, to start a Kickstarter, to raise the money to do the Meow the Jewel thing. And when we saw that, uh, and we saw that they were doing it, we were like, oh, ha ha. But this is a joke, and we don't really feel comfortable with you raising money, you know, using this as the, the mechanism. You know, this, and this is, of course, in the wake of Eric Garner's mm-hmm. death, Mike Brown's death, and we were very cognizant and aware of, of that. And there was just a whole wave of um, exposure of the murderous behavior of the police in America towards black men. You know, we we kind of decided that maybe we could get behind it because we because if it was for a good cause, so we mm-hmm. we decided like, hey, fuck it, 
why not? I reached out to the, to the kid and I was like, we can, we'll do this, but none of the money goes to you. It has to go to charity. It has to go to, um, it has to go to, um, the families of, of, uh, Mike Brown and Eric Garner equally. And so he, uh, you know, agreed and we got, we put our weight behind the Kickstarter campaign and lo and behold, everybody wanted a cat album. Yeah, man. You, you know, it was the first time that I think we had ever used this thing that we had to do something that we thought was to, like we first time we had aligned it in a real way with our politics and what we wanted to do in the world, which is use what we had to, um, to help people in some way. And we had never really been in that position before. And so this was the first time that we saw an opportunity to raise some money for charity straight up. And then, so I kind of used all of my friendships with all these different producers that I always wanted to work with and, mm-hmm. and who were friends. And I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out to work with you. <laughs> and here's the thing. <laughs> You're going to be using cat noises. I mean, everybody um, killed it though. Like which everybody killed it. Everybody killed it. And, um, and it was a challenge and it was like this, you know, and, um, I was really proud of it, but, and we got, you know, we got this money to, uh, directly to Eric Garner and Michael That's Brown's beautiful. families, respectively. And then the rest of the money continues to go to National Lawyers Guild, which is the, nice. which is the same organization that we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for with the release of Run With Jewels 4. And have continued to work with throughout, which is an organization that um, provides legal counsel to protesters, amongst other things, you know, watchdogs, et cetera. Uh, where did y'all record that conversation with Snoop that's at the top of the uh, Yellow Jewels? I was the whole cat album? Cat album. Damn. Motherfuckers started bringing their cats to the tour bus. Meow, 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 meow. Farina. Oh, we might have to sample that for the album. Snoop Dogg. <laughs> uh-huh. Snoop was uh, an RTJ fan. He had invited us to. Um, to his show, like his YouTube show. Yeah. I, I couldn't go the day he invited me. And then Mike went and I was very mad at Mike because <laughs> I was like, how are you going to just jump in front of this and just go when he invited both of us, you motherfucker. And, but Mike, <laughs> Mike, Mike couldn't stop himself because he's, he's such a weed head and he wanted, he just wanted to go. Hey, so he, he wasn't going to pass up that opportunity. I didn't want to pass it up either. I just couldn't do it on that day. Word. Bastard. Me and Michael. <laughs> be fighting about that one literally forever. And um, <laughs> so that was where the relationship was. And I think that that's how that happened. I am, you know, glad y'all, y'all did it for the, for the great reason of raising money for a cause that shouldn't be necessary, but unfortunately is. And then, you know, you're able to make some music that's like, that shouldn't make any sense, <laughs> but it came out like, Super ill. Um, There's jams on there that I like more than the like the original. Like the wow. like the Just Blaze shit is like neck and neck to me with like the original. Like that's when I realized how ill a producer Just Blaze is. Like he's fucking just ill. Like to, to make like like the low end that this dude got out of this shit was just incredible. <laughs> I was like, God damn! I was happy to do that. I was really proud of us um, that we were able to facilitate that, and it was the beginning of something for us because it, it made me realize because of the way that we had kept our business structure and because we kind of have just decided to do things in a, in a sort of a disruptive way, it gave us a lot of room to play with that and to use it for good. And, you know, it also created a relationship with us and Eric, Erica Garner, you know, which was something that was really cool. You know, Erica Garner was super appreciative and we were really 
touched to to be in touch with her and I was very of course just like everyone else very very saddened when she passed away and um, there was a lot of poignancy that came out of that stupid idea and the idea was doing maximum good with maximum stupid you know that, that we could using humor and good intention and also again the joke being on us what could be a more of a joke on yourself than forcing yourself to executive produce and produce a, a you know, a fucking cat noise album. <laughs> like, you know, so I felt good about that. I felt good about the power of humor and stupidity. And it inspired us, I think, to continue to keep looking for ways that we could contribute socially to charity. And, an, and another uh, lesson that we should all learn, never underestimate the love for cats on the internet. Just never. do it. I didn't realize, dog. I, I was like, I, yeah, man, I, I, was, I was a fool. I was a fool. <laughs> well, I think that's a great place uh, for us to leave off on the jewels too. Uh, next time we come back, we'll talk about the next installment um, where things got turned up miraculously another notch. Um, yeah. But yeah, man, it's, it's it's great to talk about Run the Jewels too, especially in terms of the journey between the first one and the second one. Um, and and kind of watching y'all go from, okay, this is a fun one-off thing to like, no, this is, this is something that we can get behind and people can get behind. And like, now we're seeing the evidence of it. It's really a beautiful thing, man. Thank you. Yeah. And that was an amazing experience. All right. Well, we will holla at y'all next time. We'll run a Jules three. This is what had happened was. What happened? What happened? What happened?